Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bible class. My name is Paul McCain. I'm a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I serve at Concordia Publishing House as publisher and executive director of the editorial department. For those of you at home, our lessons for today that we will be reviewing together are from the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. That will be next Sunday. And the readings include from the Old Testament, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 13, the Gospel lesson, Luke 17, 11 through 19. And I also asked Pastor to include the psalm appointed for the day because it fits well with our uh, lessons, particularly the Gospel. We begin with prayer. Lord, your words are waters living. When my thirsting spirit pleads, Lord, your words are bread life-giving. On your words, my spirit feeds. Lord, your words will be my light through death's veil, its dreary night. Yes, they are my sword prevailing and my cup of joy unfailing. Amen. <clears throat> and that's a uh, stanza from one of my favorite hymns, Speak, O Lord, Your Servant Listens, by a younger Lutheran woman in the 17th century, Anna Sophia. Beautiful hymn, Lord, Speak, O Lord, Your Servant Listens. We have interesting, uh, well, we always have interesting lessons from the Bible, but today it's uh, generally <clears throat> the connection between the Old Testament and the Gospel is, I think, a little more apparent than it might be today, or maybe you see it perfectly already, and it took me a little longer to figure out why they paired the story of Ruth with the story of the healing of the lepers from Luke 17. The epistle lesson, as usual, <coughs> is called a, a continuous reading, uh, continuo lectio in Latin, and it really is not designed necessarily to speak to either of the lessons. You can always, any good pastor can force a connection. <laughs> but seriously, the goal of the epistle readings is simply to move us through the epistles of St. Paul in a regular manner. That's why, you know, we heard uh, Romans, you'll hear Romans all the way through and so on. Now we're in 2 Timothy 2. Great lesson, and we'll talk about it. The psalm for the day is a beautiful psalm. And perhaps, and you remember me if I forget to do this, okay? We'll have that as our closing reading today. And it fits beautifully with what we're talking about. So, the story of Ruth. Do you recall the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1? There are a handful of women mentioned. Tamar who was a prostitute, Bathsheba, the wife that uh, King David basically stole away from Uriah the Hittite, um, of course, Mary, the mother of our Lord, and Ruth is right in there. Ruth eventually married a man named Boaz, who was the great-grandfather of King David. 
So she's right in line of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Matthew uh, could have, but the Holy Spirit only inspired Matthew to speak about uh, these women. Let me just make sure I've got them all here. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's the first woman. And then this man named Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And it's interesting, when they come to uh, Mary, obviously, Mary does not, uh, Matthew does not refer to Joseph as the father of Christ. Simply says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So it's just interesting. Ruth stands out in this genealogy along with other women, several of whom, at least one other, was not of the chosen people of Israel. So now you're beginning to get the reason why this reading from Ruth is paired with that of Matthew, because who was it among the lepers healed who came back to Jesus to thank him? The non-Jew, the Samaritan. Okay? So... <clears throat> That's, that's really the connection. But let's talk a little bit about Ruth's situation. It was actually a tragic situation, and there's so many things that go wrong for uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law. First of all, uh, Naomi had to flee away from the city of Bethlehem, from Bethlehem. So we make note of that. It was a time of famine. It was a time when the people of Israel were still being ruled by judges. Uh, the judges, we could also call them uh, governors. They were basically local chieftains, chief of their tribes, who were called by Yahweh to deliver his people from foreign oppressors. So this happened in the days when the judges ruled. So there was a problem. There was a crisis. Bethlehem, which ironically means health, house of bread, literally, from two um, uh, Hebrew words, bet, meaning house, and lechem, meaning bread, bethlehem, which means house or granary of bread, has no food. Sounds a little bit like what drove the whole situation with Joseph. There was a famine in the land, and so, frankly, rather than staying put and relying on the providential care of the Lord, Naomi's husband took her and fled into Moab. Now, if we know anything about the Lord's commands about Moab, was that a place that good, faithful children of Israel should have gone? The answer, no. The Lord commanded them to stay away from Moab, and, not to spoil the story, but you know it already, not to marry non-children of Israel daughters. And who did his sons marry? Two Moabite women, two pagans. This was utterly forbidden to the people of God. The Lord did not want his people to mix with the local population, did not want them to marry unbelievers. So there's a lot of wrong going on here right off the bat, isn't there? So in the days when the judges ruled, Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. 
they went to Moab and lived there. But then things got even worse. These two sons, as I said, they took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah. And who's everyone we know today whose name was based on a misspelling of this Old Testament name? Oprah. Oprah. Her mother or grandmother, somebody saw that name, but it came out O-P-R-A-H. But she's really named after this, this Moabite woman, Orpah. And the other one is Ruth. Do we have any Ruths here in the room today? No Ruths? Any middle names, Ruth? Ruth, you, both of you? Nice. Yeah, that's not a, not a really common name today anymore, but certainly not unknown. So they lived there 10 years, and then what happened? Their two Moabite husbands died. And you have to understand in these days, of, I mean, it's horrible today when a woman's husband dies, okay? And I know a number of you have been through that, and may God continue to comfort you. But back then, when your husband died, you were in a real world of hurt. So both of these men died, and the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So all the men in the family died. This was a horrible, horrible situation for a woman, particularly a woman living in a foreign land all by herself who had married into and had daughters, foreign daughters. So it was just a, you know, we all know what our family dynamics are like. So there's a lot going on in a few words here. You can imagine, naturally, <clears throat> Naomi assumed, well, <clears throat> I'm just going to head back home. So then what's the story? <clears throat> she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields that the Lord had finally visited his people and given them food. So the Lord did come to their rescue. He did preserve his people where they had left. They shouldn't have left. The Lord provided. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But then Naomi, and I think this is a natural assumption, don't you? Just said, basically, thank you so much. You've been great daughters-in-law, but you're no longer bound to me. Your husbands are, are dead. You just go on home now. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, may the Lord deal kindly with you. So they had treated their deceased spouse and father-in-law with great respect. And Naomi wishes them well. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, go home to your husband's families. Once a woman married into a husband's family, she was part of that family. Then she kissed them, and the reaction, they started to cry. They said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. And Naomi pleaded with them again, Please turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? In other words, I'm too old for a husband and to have children. I'm not going to be able to provide new husbands for you. Go your way. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? In other words, old enough to marry? Would you therefore refrain from marrying for all those additional years? 
No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter. There's that word bitter that will come up a little later, actually in the verse just after our lesson. It is extremely bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she was very upset, very sad, very downcast. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth wouldn't let her go. Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said to Ruth, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Interesting. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here comes this famous verse. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, and she uses the name of the Lord, the revealed name of the Lord, Yahweh. May Yahweh so do to me, do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. So Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her and said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. Let me just a little more. They cut it off too too soon. You've got to hear the rest of this. Yeah, I know you might know the rest of the story, but we've got to hear it. Let's see. Ruth 1. There we go. Oh, come on. There we go. Ruth 1. So right as our, our reading ends at verse 19, the whole town was stirred because of them. <clears throat> and, the woman, and the women said, the women of the town said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Guess what Mara means? Bitter. Bitter. Just like the word there. All the, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Call me bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, when Yahweh, has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you know what happens then? Boaz owned the property where Ruth was gleaning grain from the harvested grain. The Lord, remember, the Lord commanded, don't, don't gather everything, whatever drops, whatever you don't get on your first harvest, leave it behind for the poor. So Naomi and Ruth literally getting their daily bread from that grain harvest. And Boaz saw Ruth. And they fell in love, and they lived happily ever after. That's basically, I mean, okay. That's basically true. And Ruth became a great, 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 great grandma to Jesus. Yep. Could you speak up just a little bit?
Well, this is, a, this is one of the points I'm going to make, so thanks for saying that. At some point, Ruth had come to a living faith and trust in the one true God. So the whole story of Ruth is about God's providential direction of history for the sake of the coming Savior and for the sake of the salvation of the world. And this is just but one story in the Old Testament that demonstrates this, that in the midst of the most messed up, horrible situation, in the midst of his own people's disobedience, and I, I don't mean to be harsh with uh, Naomi, it's really her husband's fault. He took his family to the foreign land. Okay, she had no choice but to go. So her husband placed her in an untenable situation, and then when he died and his sons died, these three women were left by themselves, alone, without somebody to care for them, and that was it. Now, I don't want to read too much in Naomi's psyche, and I would hope later on she recognizes the Lord's caring hand for her in spite of everything, but she was very bitter. Ruth, however, is a shining example of faithfulness, confidence in the Lord's care, devotion to her mother-in-law, and the Lord cared for her wonderfully and gave her a new husband, and the Lord's mission in the world continued through these people, through these flawed human beings. I've been reading, I like to read through the Bible. Well, that's a good thing since I'm a pastor, I guess. Uh, I, I like to really try to move through the Bible twice a year, and I'm in, um, uh, I just started Second Kings. I mean, it is so depressing to read of king after king after king. And he walked in the ways of his father and was did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he followed the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And he married, you know, I just got done with the whole story of Ahaz and Jezebel and Elijah. And I mean, it's just how the Lord was so patient with his people over and over and over and over again. These things happened. But this lesson is about the Lord's providential care for us no matter what happens. It may not seem obvious, and we always kind of skip step over the time frame here, but this was, for years this was going on in the lives of these people. For years. And I read something, um, what was I forget what I was, oh yeah, the whole, the miracles that Elijah did, and then Elisha did. Uh, miracles were few and far between in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly. Uh, and in the New Testament, for that matter. But because we have four Gospels that all tell all the wonderful things Jesus did, we get this kind of impression that people back then just kind of ran around doing miracles, and the prophets just ran around doing miracles. No, they were very rare. Very rare. If you, if you look for all the actual miracles done in the Old Testament, you will not find many. The ones that you do find stand out in our minds because they're so spectacular. You know, the Lord's miraculous deliverance of his people from Egypt. And then we bump into people like Elijah. You can see why Jesus was mistaken for being an Old, Old Testament-style prophet, and John the Baptist for that matter, too. But the Lord rarely worked through spectacular miracles, but the Lord works quietly and very deliberately and very patiently behind the scenes. Our Lutheran confessions say that the Holy Spirit 
works faith when and where he will. Okay? You cannot force the Lord's hand. You cannot make him do what you want to do on his timeline, on your timeline. But the Lord knows best. Any questions at this point about the story of Ruth? So you've got some of the main characters here. These two pagan uh, women, Ruth, a pagan, non, uh, was not a daughter of the people of God, but became one. The Lord called her to faith in himself. She became a very faithful, devout follower of the Lord. And this is expressed in her, her life through good works. You know, the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? And we could go on and on about talking about Ruth as a, uh, a model, as an example, as well we should. You know, Lutherans don't pray to the saints. Uh, we don't venerate saints. We come pretty close. Uh, we all but venerate. Um, venerate just means to hold them in very high regard. I know it's a fine line between, and the Roman Catholics are very quick to say, we don't worship them, we venerate them. And we were like, well, what's the difference? You're still saying a prayer to them. Um, we hold them in very high regard, not because they can do something for us or they hear our prayers, but the Lutheran confessions say the reasons we do hold the saints in high regard and esteem them, first of all, as examples of faith. We look to Ruth as an example of faith. Uh, we also see them as sinners in need of salvation who received it from the Lord, and we do want to emulate any positive virtue we see in them. Well, there's a lot to see in Ruth. I've got to ask, how many or who or have any married people here used this text for their wedding? There you go. Okay. This is Thomas. It's not one-sided, is it? Even though um, Ruth says this to her mother-in-law, when a couple uses this in their wedding... Uh, don't think it's just the woman saying this to the man. But this, is a, this can be used as a very beautiful passage for a Christian wedding <clears throat> because together the couple now takes up the journey of faith, going where, each, you know, I'll go where you go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, so on and so forth. So it's often used as a, a wedding text. Sometimes it's used in jewelry. It, it's, a very, it's a very popular text. Lynn, in my wedding verse was... Uh, Heirs together of the grace of life. So, that's the story of Ruth. I've got to keep moving here. Yeah, for some reason, when I prepared this Bible class, I used two different commentaries. I've got like, well, we could be here till next month. I've got 90 pages on Ruth, uh, <laughs> even though I started with the gospel. But here's a, here's a great thought. Conveniently taken from the Concordia Commentary on Ruth, published by Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ruth is a model for many converts to Christ throughout the history of the church, including the present, who thereby cross cultural as well as religious barriers and often alienate their families and ethnic or national people, but who are united in Christ with Christians of all backgrounds. Likewise, husbands and wives who are united with each other through faith are empowered to reconcile differences of nationality, culture, and race as challenging as that may be. And so, you all know this, but there is absolutely 
zero room in the church for any form or even any hint of racism. Or over the years, we've seen shameful examples of Christians ostracizing people because they weren't from their kind of people or, or you know, even the years when it was illegal for a African-American to be married to a, to a Caucasian white woman. Thankfully, those days are gone. But please understand that the Christian faith and the Holy Scriptures and your Lord and God forbid that. Absolutely. There is no room for that. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I just wanted to say that. So that's one really kind of cool thing here. And, um, of course, they went back to Bethlehem, and who came from Bethlehem? Jesus, the Christ. Okay, let's just uh, look at the epistle lesson. I'm not going to spend as much time with it, really, because I want to get to the, to the gospel lesson which is the main lesson here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is St. Paul writing to Timothy. They had a very close relationship, like a father and a son, as Paul would often uh, speak of it. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For, and here he arguably cites an ancient early Christian hymn, For, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So this is Second Timothy. These, this may well have been St. Paul's very last letter to Timothy. He was in, uh, in prison, in chains. In others of his letter, he ref letters he refers to being in chains. So this is kind of the last will and testament, so to speak, to uh, St. Timothy. My name happens to be Paul. Timothy. My dad did that purposely. Now, my dad's name was Paul, but he's, he, and I believe it, absolutely. He did not name me after himself. He wanted me to be named after the Apostle Paul, and he picked Timothy because he was thinking of that relationship. And then, of course, his name being Paul. So often when I got a book from my dad or a Bible or anything, guess where he picked his Bible passages from? Letters to Timothy. So it's always kind of a special connection. Um, and the, uh, you've been to, who is, who's been to the seminary chapel? Many people in the room, maybe? If you get a chance to go to the, to the chapel on the campus of Concordia Seminary, it's the chapel of St. Timothy and St. Titus, and the, the beautiful stained glass in the front has an image of Timothy and Titus. Titus was another young man 
whom Paul had been training to be a pastor. So it's perfect for a seminary chapel. So um, the thing that really jumps off the page at me, uh, among many things that certainly do and can, is Paul's passionate interest, and you see this throughout his epistles, he's telling uh, Timothy to remain strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, <coughs> but for a purpose. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, the Lutheran Church does not believe in the doctrine of apostolic succession. Mm, sort of. <laughs> we don't believe in the doctrine of apostolic succession as the Roman Catholic Church teaches it. In the Roman Church, and you can understand, I always like to say, you've got to understand why these doctrines came about, why somebody believes something the way they do, why a church teaches. They don't just, the stuff just doesn't develop out of thin air. The Roman Catholic Church, in a well-intentioned desire to preserve the Christian faith, to do what St. Paul is saying here, developed this very elaborate doctrine of papal authority. Once Rome, once the Western Church was, was on its own, basically, at, by about 500-600 A.D., the Bishop of Rome, who before that had been one of many equals around the Roman Empire, there were five major uh, called sees. Um, let's see if I can remember them. Alexandria in Egypt, Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, and I think Constantinople. Eh, can't remember the fifth one, but you, you get the picture. There were major Christian centers, like all, basically around the rim of the Mediterranean. Rome was just one of one of many. The Pope never claimed to be above them all. He started to, so then there developed this idea that pastors, when they're placed in office, or priests, uh, are ordained <clears throat> literally with the laying on of hands by a bishop who himself had received his authority as bishop directly from the Pope. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is a great reference book for understanding what the Catholic Church actually teaches and believes, uh, it's a great book. Um, not that I agree with it all, but it's just so convenient to have it all right there. In the Roman Church, all authority for the ministry flows from the Pope himself, okay? The priests in the local parishes are not doing what they're doing on their own authority by any means. They are acting as agents, ultimately, of the papacy in Rome. The Lutherans came along in the 16th century, and if you want to read our definitive statement on the doctrine of the ministry, there's a document in the Book of Concord called On the Power and Primacy of the Pope. Well, it's actually much more than that. It explains what genuine apostolic succession is and what is it. It is a church acting uh, at the command of the uh, Holy Scriptures, the Lord himself of the church has instituted an office of the ministry, and the church, by the authority given to it, every local congregation has this authority equally, calls men to be put into that office. And what's being the apostolic succession is the authority of the gospel itself coming down through the generations by means of this, pro of this process. And it's very literally true to this day. When men study to be pastors, they are being entrusted with the same apostolic ministry that all the pastors who have come before them with the teachings of the church 
and they carry on that teaching. Not, they don't answer to the Pope, they answer to Christ, and they're answerable to the people whom they serve. So we don't believe in the kind of apostolic succession that, that Rome teaches, but we very much believe that the Holy Spirit continues to call faithful men who are entrusted with the same truth that St. Paul entrusted Timothy with, that Timothy entrusted others with, and on down it comes to the present, to the present age. So we, don't, we Lutherans don't get all worried about whose holy hands have touched our heads. We're rather concerned that we continue to carry on the ministry and mission of the Holy Spirit in the church today. Um, that's about all I have to say about that lesson. Do you have any comments about that at all? <clears throat> okay. I almost said, okay, now for the fun stuff. No, 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 no. That would be totally inappropriate. But do you want to learn about leprosy today? Did you come to church today saying, boy, I hope I learn about leprosy today? First of all, do we have any medical professionals in the room? Doctors? Oh, good. <laughs> then you won't laugh at me when I mispronounce some things. We hear this lesson all the time, and uh, traditionally, what day, uh, what, uh, I'll just call it what it is. It's not a church festival. It's a holiday. It's a national holiday. When we come to church on a given national holiday during the year, what lesson is often read? Well, this is a lesson often read, but on what holiday? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And it's perfect. It's a great lesson for Thanksgiving. Because... All those other guys didn't come back, but only one person came back to thank Jesus, and we should all be like the one guy. Well, there's a little more to the story than, than meets the eye. First of all, leprosy itself. <clears throat> You've all watched that movie Ben-Hur, the classic with Charlton Heston and his family who uh, is put in a situation where they catch leprosy. Well, I've always kind of wondered, I never really spent any time, what is leprosy anyway? Um, let me just tell you a little bit about how horrible leprosy is, and then I think you'll come away today with a greater understanding of what a wonderful way for us to understand our salvation from sin is by talking about the curse of leprosy. First of all, it was universally terrifying. There was no known cure. It was a chronic wasting disease it's not really a skin disease, it's an affliction of the nervous system. Okay, people didn't understand that for a long time. In fact, it wasn't until uh, where is his name? Yeah, um, a man named Gerhard Henrik Armauer Hansen described what he found to be the cause of leprosy. He found a little bacteria and he gave, it, uh, he gave it the name, hold on, I'll get it right here. Yeah, Lepra, uh, Mysobacillus leprae. But the disease today is known as Hansen's disease. So if you hear that, that's leprosy. The, the, the disease of leprosy clinically is known as Hansen's disease because it was discovered, the bacteria that causes it was discovered by this man named Hansen. That wasn't until 1873. Can you imagine? 1873? So anywhere you read in the Old Testament about leprosy, it's always a horrifying thing. It occurs, it's mentioned 68 times, 
And I know some of you are going to say, yeah, but, but what about those weird passages that talk about leprosy on the walls and on clothing? That is a puzzlement. When you read about that, the Old Testament people of God were commanded to chisel out any mold or mildew or any discoloration on their walls. And that was also described as leprosy. The point is leprosy was a horribly visible image of uncleanliness, unholiness. And in the Old Testament, we've heard this in church a few times. This is why you have these stories of like Jesus and the man born blind. In Jesus' day, if you were afflicted with something like leprosy, and there could be hardly be anything worse than leprosy, um, you were considered to be a sinner who was being very visibly punished by God. And oftentimes people with leprosy also happen to be poor. Well, yeah, um, living conditions being such, leprosy spreads by uh, uh, breathing, respiration, you pick it up. Um, and this also explains why, you know, we have all these expressions for, you know, oh, let's treat, treat them like a leper. Lepers were excluded from the community. They were come, in the Old Testament. They had to leave. They had to live outside the gates of a town. Hence our story. How did these, this group, they often lived together in groups to support one another. But you didn't die from leprosy per se. You might die from side effects of it. You don't lose your appendages because of leprosy. If you lose a finger or something like that, it's because you have lost all nerve sensation and they might accidentally be lost. It was, it's a horrible, it was horrible to look at. It was a horrible, horrible thing. It's a great picture of sin. Leprosy was not of the essence of what it is to be human, just as sin is not of our essence. But once we are born with this sickness called sin, it stays with us. Our whole life it is forgiven we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ which is like a medicine for sin all these images can now kind of become very very vivid so leprosy is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament um, there's still some dispute about exactly what this leprosy was in the Old and New Testament but for certain it definitely included what we now know today as Hansen's disease um, like I say, it's really, it's the bacteria that cause leprosy is related to tuberculosis. And, you, all, you know, remember the days they had tuberculosis sanitariums, you sent people away to Wheat Ridge, Colorado, uh, try to get better from tuberculosis. The good news today is it can be cured through a regimen of medications often lasting up to 12 months. Are there still leper colonies of Probably the most famous community of lepers to this day are people who, it's probably cured now, but there was an actual whole island in the Hawaii island chain that was, uh, people with leprosy were sent to this island. So it's maybe one of the more famous uh, leper colonies. The symptoms start in the skin, peripheral nerve system, outside the brain and spinal cord, spread to other parts such as hands, feet, face, earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, their limbs will become twisted, their fingers become curled to form a characteristic claw hand. Lepers, people suffering from Hansen's will often, in its more advanced stages, their hands form into almost a permanent claw. Uh, facial, facial changes can occur, including thickening of the outer ear, collapsing of the nose. And so this is why lepers in Jesus' day, and today for that matter, in these, if they have advanced day, they would cover themselves up completely. 
The Ben-Hur movie does a really good job showing this woman and her daughter covering themselves up to prevent people from seeing their leprosy. The largest numbers of deformities in leper patients develop from loss of pain due to extensive nerve damage. For instance, inattentive patients with leprosy can pick up boiling water, a cup of boiling water without even flinching. They have no nerve sensation. So it's a horrible, horrible thing. Now I can go on and on here, but um, when you look at some of the conditions Jesus healed, it may be, for instance, when he healed the man with the withered hand, Mark 3, Matthew 12, Luke 6, this person may have been suffering from a form of leprosy. References to leprosy have a different emphasis in the New Testament. They stress God's desire to heal. And what's the most amazing thing Jesus did that no one would dare do in the presence of a leper? First of all, they, they were required by Old Testament law to call out unclean, unclean. That was a requirement in the Old Testament. But what did Jesus do? Remember? He touched lepers. He touched people with leprosy. That was horrifying to the people of Jesus' day. Remember how often Jesus is uh, denounced and, and savagely criticized by the Pharisees for eating with sinners, for associating with them, for being around prostitutes. And worst of all, in the grand scheme of everything he did that was shocking, he touched people with leprosy? These people who had leprosy, because they themselves were obviously horrible sinners who deserved it, and God was punishing them, and Jesus touched these people. Amazing. They were banished. They were cast out of their families and communities. And Jesus treats them with great compassion, touched them, and healed them. Here's a great line here. Although we can't know all the reasons that God allows disease into our lives, biblical leprosy is a powerful symbol reminding us of sin's spread and its horrible consequences. Like leprosy, sin starts out small, but it can spread, it leads to other sins, and it can cause great damage to our relationship with God and others. Isn't it interesting? Leprosy causes you to lose feeling. Sin, when persistently indulged in, causes you to become desensitized to sin. There's so much to be said here. Okay? Uh, you can just pause for a moment and think of your life. Things that you would never in a million years want to stand up in this room and tell us about. And I don't know. We don't know. God knows. Things that keep you awake at night. Things that haunt you. The guilt that comes back. The leprous sin which we're afflicted with. Sometimes it's just because we're kind of caught up in the, uh, what do they call that in war? Collateral damage of other people's sins. We need the healing touch of Jesus Christ. He touched these leprous people. 
which was never done. He heals them. And there can be, in my opinion, no more dramatic picture, example, a visual aid of exactly what Jesus does for all of us. Every one of you has the leprosy called sin. And it works its way out in your life in ways that are unique, different. But your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has cleansed you, the washing of holy baptism. He feeds you his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. You hear his gracious words, and they're always saying to you, be healed, be clean. I love you. I forgive you. Studying leprosy helps us see why pain is a valuable gift. It's a survival mechanism to warn us of danger in this cursed world. Without pain and suffering, we might be like lepers, unable to recognize something is terribly wrong and that we need the healing touch of God. Interesting, a doctor treating patients with leprosy said this, I can't think of a greater gift I can give my leprosy patients than pain. Wow, you have to stop for a moment. Really? But the, the opposite of that is you feel nothing. You're so desensitized in the case of leper, lepers, uh, people suffering Hansen's disease, that you lose parts of your body. You lose touch with everything. So this is a hard thing to hear, and you probably won't hear it in the happy, clappy churches out there. But don't be too quick. Don't be too quick to want to remove all pain in your life, whether physical, emotional, social, spiritual, because it just may well be, and in fact we know it is, God's way of grabbing a megaphone at times and yelling in your ear to get your attention. I'm not saying you have any right to pray for this, wish it on anybody. You shouldn't go around asking God for more pain. I'm not suggesting anything like that. But all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So now this story. That was kind of a long preamble, but you really have to understand how horrible leprosy is and was, particularly in those days. The lesson is not too long. On the way to Jerusalem, this is Luke 17, 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. <clears throat> As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. Remember, lepers would group together for mutual support who stood at a distance. They were outside the village. Lepers would often remain just outside the village where people could bring them charity and food and things like that. But they stood at a distance, parentheses, as the Old Testament commanded, and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A little bit of a different expression than we um, hear elsewhere, but... In church, when we say the Kyrie, that's Greek for Lord, Lord have mercy. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. That liturgical prayer and expression we use often comes from these incidents. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now this is kind of interesting. There's no account here of Jesus in this case touching them physically. Um, he doesn't even say anything about healing them. He just says, go show yourselves to the priest. And they were probably like, well, okay. So they did. <clears throat> and as they went, they were cleansed. The priest had to certify their person had been cleansed of leprosy before they were allowed back in the community. Verse 15. 
They're going to show themselves to the priest. Suddenly, they're cleansed. Can you imagine? They were so shocked and stunned. And in that shock, stunned amazement, only one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God again with a loud voice, fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Oh, now to add insult to injury, he was a Samaritan. <laughs> you know, the story of the Good Samaritan was shocking to the people because, as many of you know, Samaritans were regarded as heretics in the uh, Jewish community. They worshipped on this mountain. We worshipped in Jerusalem. There's a whole history to this division. Um, some, uh, the Samaritan religion was a form of, of Judaism, frankly. I mean, they believe there's one God and so forth, but they believe this mountain's holy, the Jews believe this mountain was holy. In other words, Samaritans were looked down upon, like second-class, third-class, fourth-class citizens. They weren't considered part of the people of God. So of all the guys, of all the men, and I assume they were men, of the ten, there was only one who bothered to go back to Jesus and give him thanks. And hence, you can recite every Thanksgiving sermon you've ever heard in your life. It's all true. It's all great. Um, and he said, Jesus, to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, there's a couple things here which are really fascinating. First of all, just don't go too quickly, pass too quickly over what happens when the man comes back to Jesus. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. This wasn't because he stumbled and fell. He was in shock. This is referring to the ancient posture of prayer where you would literally go to your face on the ground. And the Greek here behind this is describing worship. Who's the only one to whom the people of God were to give their worship? Their, to the one true God. What's happening here? Jesus is being worshipped as God. He fell at Jesus' feet while he was praising God. This is a very definitive yet somewhat subtle cue to us. Hey, Jesus is true God. He has the power to heal lepers. And there is a lesson here for us. <clears throat> so you've got leprosy. You probably lived for years with leprosy, outside a village, cast away from your family, and along comes this great man that somehow they had heard of. They must have heard the crowd talking or something. They knew Jesus was on that road, and they started yelling out, and this often happens. I mean, how else are you going to get Jesus' attention with a crowd? Started yelling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they were looking to Jesus for the good that he can bring them, because they'd probably heard about his miracles. The healing of the lepers is almost anticlimactic here. Go show yourselves the priests they were healed. So friends, when you look at your life and you consider the leprosy of your sin, what is our reaction to being forgiven? Being thankful. Being thankful. <clears throat> I'm going to let uh, Martin Luther have the last word this morning. Uh, CPH published, uh, that's 1-800-325-3040, a collection of Luther's sermons on the gospel lessons. And we've actually put them in two paperback volumes and took out all the uh, 
super high-end academic footnotes like, well, this manuscript, this, this, this. It's very easy to read, very clear. This is Luther talking about this lesson. Look, in Scripture, such a good hope or a comforting confidence or a bold expectation toward God, or whatever you want to call it, means a Christian faith and good conscience to which we must come if we want to be saved. However, we don't come to this by works and teachings, as we will see in this example, since without such a heart there are no good works. Therefore, be on your guard. There are many prattlers who want to teach about faith and conscience, but know less about it than a rough block of wood. They think faith is something dormant and idle in the soul, and that it is enough for the heart to believe that God is God. Here, however, in the example of this leper who returned, you see how living and very powerful faith is. It makes a completely different heart, a completely different person who expects all grace from God. This is why it urges us to run, to stand, and makes us bold to cry out and pray for all our needs. So Luther's main point is using this whole lesson as an example of true, genuine faith in God and the blessings and mercies of God that he gives to us. But he also says this. The second part of the example here is the lepers have taught us to believe, and Christ teaches us to love. Love does for our neighbor what it sees Christ has done for us. As he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you, John 13. And he says, I give you a new commandment that you should love one another. Jesus is saying to us, through me in faith, you now have everything I have. I am your own. You are now wealthy and satisfied through me for everything I do and love. I do and love not for myself, but for you. I am thinking only of how to be useful and beneficial to you and to fulfill what you need and should have. Therefore, remember this example so you also do for someone else as has been done to him by me. Let each one think only about how he from now on can live for the benefit of the neighbor and do what he sees as useful and necessary for him. Your faith has enough in my love and kindness, so your love should also give to others. Beautiful, beautiful. And of course, in Luther's day, when the people he was preaching to had been raised and trained in a system which taught you had to merit and earn God's love and favor, this was radical stuff. So we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, I'm going to read the psalm. We'll use that as our closing prayer. Psalm 111, thinking of what we've spoken about today. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. Have a good week, everybody. God be with you.